welcome to the Layer of Secrets podcast, the podcast about gaming and being a geek by two 40-something geek dads. I'm Ken Newquist, and I survived Phil Mutt. That's it. Summer's done. <laughs> and I'm David Moore. Uh, I've traveled to a castle in Ohio, uh, moderated a death race on a track in the lair, and uh, started on my quest to sail the seven seas. But we'll actually talk about that in a future episode. This episode, uh, we're going to talk, uh, Ken and I are going to talk because he's been, as you all been listening, training to hike uh, in hike Philmont for a year and a half now. Probably would have only been maybe a, what, a half a year uh, if, yes. not for COVID. Yes. <laughs> if not for COVID? If not for COVID, uh, yeah, it would have only been more like half a year. So time well spent, but. Uh... Yeah. So um, remind us where. Uh, where Philmont is and and what prompted the whole trip. Okay, cool. So go back to the way, way back machine. So Philmont is a uh, it's Philmont Scout Ranch. It is a functioning ranch and high adventure camp in Cimarron, New Mexico, which is in northern New Mexico, not too far from uh, Colorado and Colorado Springs. I think it's like a couple hours south of Colorado Springs, a couple hours north of Santa Fe. Actually, the Santa Fe Trail, which was very famous uh, once upon a time, uh, passes right past Cimarron. Cool. And so, uh, what, what did we do there? So, we spent 12 days backpacking in in the wilderness. Like, not like, haha wilderness. Like, this is real, true wilderness. Not like, when we were practicing and getting ready for this, it was New Jersey. And we were in the wilderness, and we were up on a ridge line, and we could look overlook, you know, the Delaware River and what have you. But you could still hear the traffic in New Jersey. Right. Here, you are truly honest to god remote like if you mess up you're in trouble you're you're <laughs> that kind of remote <laughs> like 20 miles away from anything at least yeah yeah so uh it was uh 12 days of pretty intense backpacking um and the reason why we did it so my son and i are in a scout troop and we have a number of boys who have been actually been trying to go to Philmont for a number of years so i think four years ago they started on this quest I think it was four. So they, they, the first time they wanted to go, there was this massive forest fire at Philmont, and it just it closed down the whole ranch. And as oh, wow. a result, the crew could. The next year, uh, they actually did a high adventure thing where they uh, of their own design, where they just hiked a bunch of high peaks up in the Adirondacks out in state. Next year, we were going to go to Philmont for. Um, we were going to go to Philmont, and uh, the COVID hit. <laughs> Pandemic shuts us down. We can't go. And so finally, in twenty twenty actually make so maybe it was three years uh but in any case we finally actually got there and so the trek was kind of interesting so we we flew out from newark airport we landed in denver and we drove to colorado springs and we spent two days in colorado because we're a bunch of flatlanders from the east coast right (laughs) and when you arrive i mean it's the mile high city when you get into denver right so that's i think it's about six thousand feet and the idea is you spend the first two days in Denver, getting in the Colorado, just getting acclimated to the altitude to help with the altitude. Yep. So yep. Uh, we went to Pikes Peak, uh, which is uh, just over 14,000 feet. And let me tell you, have you been to Pikes Peak? I have not. I have not. I've been to other peak at other peaks or near other peaks, but not Pikes Peak. It's uh, there's apparently two Pikes Peaks. There's like another <laughs> one. Like, it might actually, they might be in Ohio. I have to not, remember exactly where. It's not like the Twin Peaks of Kilimanjaro from Monty Python sketch. <laughs> I don't remember that one. Okay. <laughs> but in any case, like, it was, the Pike, the guy who it's named for, I guess he found this first thing out in the Midwest, and then he found a real mountain out in the Colorado. Not to disparage the Midwest, I'm just saying, I think we can all admit that there's probably no 14,000 
beat tall mountains. There might have been, but the glaciers took care of that. This is true. Just just knocked them right down to size. So we went to Pikes Peak. That was tough, right? So you get to the top, and um, you can feel the elevation change at that point. When you get to the top, you've got something like, I don't remember the exact number, but it's like 20% of the oxygen you're used to breathing at normal elevation, right? And so all the, 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 the kids and I, like everybody was like, just like, you get up there and you're a little bit short of breath. The kids are running up and down the stairs and they're like, wow, we're out of breath. So you could feel it as soon as you got up. So that was a good way of kind of acclimating to it. Uh, we went to the Garden of the Gods, which is in Colorado Springs. And it's basically this sedimentary sandstone layer from when, uh, you know, the, the ocean, the Great Inland Sea covered the central United States back in the days of the dinosaurs, right? And all of that sediment got laid down. And then when the, I think they call them the ancestral Rockies, the Rockies that predate the current Rockies rose okay. up. They smashed that sediment and threw it up into the air, basically. Like, it tilted it on its side, so it's perpendicular mm. to the ground. So yep, yep. a very cool, very weird, very red sandstone that just rose up out of the ground, which is Got it. really, really cool. It just looks like something out of your D&D campaign. <laughs> right. Or Star Trek. Or Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, you could totally have filmed an episode of Star Trek there. It was, you know, you just needed to be making some sort of rudimentary lathe and trying to fend off a giant reptilian uh, humanoid, right? Yes, yes. And then we went went, went rafting on the Arkansas River. Uh, nice. Class 3 and Class 4 rapids. First time I've ever done Class 4 rapids. I will freely admit I spent, like, a good chunk of the time uh, worried that I was going to lose my son out the back. Because, <laughs> you know, as parents, that's what you do, right? Like, yep. it's some serious water. But you have a guide in the in the raft with you. And so, that's good. Thankfully, she knew what she was doing, so she would tell us exactly what we needed. So it's kind of like the cheater's guide to Class 4 Rapids, because if it were left up to us, we would have no idea what to do, and we would have bought it multiple times, just you know, completely swamped and overturned the raft. Right. Um, with her guiding us, much better. So that's my advice. If you're going to do big rapids, bring somebody who actually knows what they're doing. At least, the, at least the first couple of times until you're used to them. Yes. Until you are the expert, I would recommend having some. Who knows what they're doing? Yeah. Um, and so finally, we get to Philmont. And uh, so base camp is at 6,430 feet. So we've been slowly gaining altitude over these first two days. We spend about a full day in base camp. And uh, that's where they, um, you know, we get all of our, we, we came with all of our gear. So we came with all of our backpacks and, and boots and what have you. Uh, but we needed, we had to get our food. Um, they did some basic training in terms of how to deal with lightning, uh, which would prove to be very important. Um, okay. <laughs> other things, how to deal with wildlife in Philmont. <laughs> stay, stay tuned for lightning strikes. Stay tuned for lightning strikes. That's super duper fun. It, now is with the setting up of the base camp, was that, was that day two of your getting acclimated or was this after the two days? That was, I think it was on, I think it was on day, technically day three. Three. Let me check. I I have a handy little notebook. Oh, nice. So you went to Pikes Peak day one, and then Colorado River day two, and then base camp yeah, day, so day three. three. We day three we did. Um, we left Colorado Springs for Philmont. So day one was like Garden of the Gods, and I think Garden of the Gods, and we stayed at uh, Great Wolf Lodge, which was cool. Headed into a water park. Kids had a lot of fun. And uh, then the next day, I think we did Pikes Peak in the morning, and then whitewater rafting in the afternoon. And so then finally on day three, we actually. Made and that's where they start telling us about like how to do navigation, and we stayed there basically for the night. Um, and then the next day, we met we met our ranger. That first day, we were actually in Philmont 
paper. An arranger is the guy who goes out with you to make sure that you actually know what you're doing and aren't to be too stupid out there. Right. Or say this correctly, not stupid at all. <laughs> yeah. And, and train us on additional wilderness skills that we uh, we might need. Yeah. I mean, like when I was in high school, we hiked um, the Halambu Trail in Nepal and we had uh, we were a bunch of junior, senior high school students and our principal as a chaperone. But we had a professional guide who hiked all all over the world. Uh, He was native to uh, Nepal, but we could not have done anything that we did without him. So. Uh, yeah, I, I going to some place and just deciding I'm going to just hike it seems a little crazy <laughs> if uh, without a guide to me, uh, unless yeah. that's what unless that's what you do on the regular. So. Right. So we, you know, we trained a lot and we so we knew a lot, um, but there was some additional navigational stuff that we reviewed in, in terms of in particular using UTM. Uh, UTM is an is a system of getting really detailed maps. Mm. So uh, you can use a, a kind of traditional map with a bearing and, you know, use your compass to orient yourself. UTM is a grid code where you can find a marker and it gives you a set of coordinates and the map itself is in one kilometer squares. And so nice. that's really granular. And so even a, a square kilometer is still actually kind of big. It is. It is. <laughs> Especially when there's like an inconvenient hill and or in the way um but uh, it gives you an approximate idea of where you are so if you need to report radio into base camp and say hey we're having problems they will have a better chance of finding you we also covered uh bear bagging uh so it uh <laughs> there are a number of indigenous animals out there you know? um mm. they have uh, the, the biggest of which and the most notable of which are mountain lions of which there are many and bears of which there are also many mm. uh and uh these critters uh you know, Philmont was closed last year because of COVID. And as a result, all the animals, dude, no humans. Let's party. Let's move back <laughs> so in. They, they we're just moving in. They moved out. So, they, you know, they were a little more uh, interested in, you know, in human places, I should say. I don't know that they were ever actually interested in us. I didn't actually get to see them. I talked with other crew people from uh, people from other crews who saw mountain lions stalking deer, uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, but generally speaking, they stay away from so, uh, but in any case, you have these animals and they are food. And so you have to do what's called a bear bag. And so the bear bag is you take all of your food, put it into actually several bags, a lot of food, and then you throw it up over uh, basically this bear wire. So they take a wire and they string it between two trees, and then you throw your bags over that cable. And so there's a way to do this correctly. And then there's a harder way of doing it, which is if you venture into the Leave No Trace area or adjacent to Philmont, there's Philmont, which is the scout reservation properly or scout ranch properly. Um, proper and then all around it are like either large stretches of land that were ranches um, that are have been preserved or national forest and so they have agreements to be able to ha- take treks into those areas but it's all leave no and it's hard right. for leave no tra- so right. there's no bear wires up right if you're hanging stuff you have to do a, a very complicated <laughs> setup to get it up into the trees and get your food up into the trees there's also in Philmont proper you have what are called red roofs, which are basically outhouses. Uh, in the Got leave it. no trace places, you bring a shovel and you dig a hole and you use said hole. And then you fill back in afterward. And then so you that, fill in afterward. Yeah. Yes. So uh, that was 
so yeah, so the ranger trained us on all of this, made sure our net we were reading the maps correctly, um, making sure that the this because it's a it's a it's a scout led thing. The leaders of our trek were the boys. We were as advisors were just there to make sure as like a safety mark. They kept the the, the everybody kept telling us like the the staffers and the that we were on vacation. I don't know that I entirely buy that, <laughs> but that was the idea. They're the ones. They're the ones who should make the decision. And so the ranger was there to help them. And then after about two days, the ranger left, and we were on our own. Gotcha. To go out and, and hike 69 miles in Belmont. Uh, spoiler, it's actually way more than 69 miles because <laughs> there's a lot of side quests. Got it. <laughs> and there's just a lot of random walking around. So you might be on the trail five miles one day. But there might be another four miles of just random walking. Trek works is that it's, you have a, a predetermined course that you're following. Uh, but there's no there's no trail markers, right? So when we go hiking on the Appalachian Trail in New Jersey, there's white places that tell you what trail you're on. No such thing in Philmont. Um, now there are roads and there are trails, and those trails are noted on the map. Um, but it's entirely possible to get lost, and you can also choose to bushwhack uh, in some places. So which is just kind of like, hey, I want to get from here to there. I'm going to go in a straight line. But you know, you want to be sensitive to the environment, and not destroy stuff. So be cautious. Um, so we go, the goal is you hike from location to location. So there are what are called staff camps, where when you come into there, you have program. So we did a uh, ropes course. We did uh, rock climbing. We did a couple of other, like we did astronomy. And so those are, are actually staffed by staff, staffed by staff. Uh, might be a little redundantly redundant, but whatever, you get my idea. There's people who are there <laughs> in those camps all the time. And right. some of those camps, you resupply, you get more food. So I believe we started off, we were carrying five or six days worth of food. And then we got to our first resupply and got more food. Uh, that is a lot of food. And That's it's a lot really of heavy to keep carrying. I mean, it, did they give you that do five to six days? And so that just in case you got lost and needed the extra no, days or. No, that was the food. That was where we were expected to resupply was in like six days after we started oh, okay. it was kind of just okay. about it just at the half day halfway point and so you were expected to carry that much ah, food. okay um, i misunderstood got it on the plus side it starts off the first couple of days the way that the itinerary works out you're doing less mileage so you might do like our first day was like three miles the second day was five miles and then it kind of went up from there whereas when you get in the latter part of the trek there was like one day that was 11 miles which is which is pretty hard um yeah. And so you're, you're hiking from camp to camp. And so there's a staff camps, but then there's also just uh, trail camps where there's no amenities or there's no staff. There's no opportunity to resupply. There might not even be any water. So you had to know where you could get water because you might have to carry it into camp with you. Yeah. And so you're just kind of marking your progress going from from place to place. And, you know, although we are in the back country and we are truly, you know, away from everything else, in certain areas, you're still going to run into other people. And more importantly, like base camp knows where you are. They know what your itinerary is and they know when you're supposed to reach a, a staff camp. So if you don't make it to a state camp staff camp because you got lost, <laughs> they're going to try and find you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the thing that I found fascinating from a technology standpoint is that it's all based on radio, right? Like there's no there's no Internet out there. There's no cellular. The only time you could use cellular is if you're at the top of a ridge line. And so they've got, you know, these uh, north radio, a south radio, and then base camp, and they've got repeaters. And all the communication going out with base camp is, is over these radios, which is just 
really just just fascinating right so if you need to call into the infirmary to get some advice it's going you stop in a staff camp and they radio the infirmary and they they kind of like diagnose it over the air right that's um, cool they make sure to make sure that the patient's information is shielded but you know because they're not identifying particular people but you hear about some great stories when you listen to that radio <laughs> <laughs> um so it was uh, so you're hiking from camp to camp and you're at elevation and the elevation is steadily going up. We started off at like 64,000, 6,400 feet. We ended at around 10,500 feet. And I'm here to tell you, it kicks your butt. <laughs> That's yeah, that that is a lot. Like like you said, 11 miles. And I, in my head, I'm like, well, you can walk 11, a mile in about 20 ish minutes. And, you know, so that's like 220 minutes. That's that's not too bad. But, you know, that's if you're just flat on a sidewalk or a road and you're right. not in any of that and you're going up at least for yes. the first half of it. Yeah. And so for the so my son and I actually had to come off the trail. He had a, a medical issue that took him off the trail for a, a day or two. And then we went back on afterwards. So I missed that particular part of the trek when mm-hmm. I talked to my friends afterwards. It was so that 11 mile day was 11 miles with elevation gain of 2000 feet. That's pretty huge. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that was in the, about in the middle. And that was in that was in what's called the Valle. It's in the northern part of, of the whole area that you can go camping in. And it's leave no trace. It was hard. Um, and, and people's feet were kind of beat up at that point. Lots of blisters, oh, yeah. lots of hot spots. Right. And so that was truly a trudge from from what I understand. Um, and so it, it's tough. And so it's good that we trained. But the challenge is coming from here. Um, I think you would have the same problem. You're at a low elevation, going to high elevation, and altitude sickness is is really a problem. Um, for some people, yeah. it's more of a problem than others. I was okay. I just kind of had headaches and needed to drink a lot. Um, my son had a harder time with it, uh, but you know, and there were. And I think by and by, our crew did pretty well as far as altitude sickness. But just having talked with some of the people in, st- in the staff camps, there's people who come off. Like there was one uh, scout who went out from a different trek. He was out there for one day and he just couldn't handle it. He had to come off because yeah. the altitude sickness was just killing him. I mean, it, literally, it, killing him, but. everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is, it can be pretty darn serious from what I understand. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and from what I remember, like we started out Malaysia, which is just about sea level and then went to Nepal, which is, you know, uh, pretty darn high up there, you know, about equivalent to what you were, you were dealing with in terms of ranges, like 6,000 to 14, 14,000. Um, and it was luckily none of us had any altitude sickness, but like we talked about it, like, and we're informed about it. Like if you start exhibiting certain symptoms or et cetera, like they were ready to, you know, have us taken, taken back sort of thing. Um, but it's one of those things that you can't predict. Like you can no, be you super, super, super great. Um, no worries at all about, um, uh, you know, super fit everything um, and just get laid low by altitude sickness. Um, yeah. Whereas someone who, you know, sits and programs at a computer all day like me, uh, you know, like <laughs> might be just fine. Altitude sickness. Totally wise. Fine. Yeah. Now my feet would be sore as heck, you know, because I wouldn't have been training, but um, yeah, but you'd be able to rock the rock the altitude uh, with no Maybe. problem. So. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it's, it, it's not random, but you, you, there's no, nothing to really predict um, no. ahead you can't of time. Prepare for it. 
yeah. prepare for it. It's just uh, it's a thing, and and you have to deal with it when you get there. So for me, it was Advil and water, and mm-hmm. that was enough to get me through it. And so it's tough though; it can make you nauseous, it can make you dizzy. Um, for me, I think the biggest thing was that first day uh, when we only went a couple of miles. We had to climb this ridge line, and it's like you just can't catch your breath. Right, like you're, you're breathing hard. You have to be careful not to hyperventilate because your your instinct is, well, I need to be breathing deeper. Well, you can't breathe any deeper. <laughs> Like you're, there's just not enough oxygen. Your body's just not absorbing enough oxygen, right? So you kind of have to slow down, catch your breath, and then keep on going. Mm-hmm. So I have to say, it was beautiful. It was, it was fantastic. The, the views out there are tremendous. People who haven't never been out in the Western United States, it's a, it's a special kind of thing because you can see for dozens, if not hundreds, of miles. You know, you see these mountains, and you're like, you don't realize just how far away they are, right? And uh, here, at least in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey as well, there's just rolling hills that block the horizon. You don't you're down in these little valleys and you just you never you don't see that far. <laughs> right. Whereas at Philmont, you're seeing like 100 miles easy. Right. And they're like, damn. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> so we could truly see the end of our trek, like 69 miles that way. Right. Yeah. That'd be pretty. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, we were always up and down and around, and so it was it was beautiful views, but there was never a clear shot to like, oh, that's where we came from, or that's where we're headed. It was always right. winding. Um, but that sounds pretty amazing. We would get up on these ridge lines, and you could see Mount Baldy is like the highest point within Philmont, and so and it's distinguished because the top of it doesn't have any trees on it. Uh, and so it stands out from all these other things. And so we're slowly making our way towards Baldy and it just keeps getting bigger in the background. And uh, it was really cool because, you you know, you wouldn't necessarily see it all the time, but you would come up onto yet another ridge and you would look and go, oh, hey, man, there's Baldy. That's mm-hmm. gotten a lot bigger. Wow. You feel the sense of accomplishment as you get closer to it. That's right? awesome. So it sounds like not only is there uh, two Pikes Peaks, but there's also two Mount Baldies because <laughs> uh, there's a Mount yes, Baldy. Next in at Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore, just off Lake Michigan, which is a sand dune, uh, which is a couple hundred feet high, <laughs> not at all the same height as Mount Baldy that you were talking about. So, yeah. So, Philmont uh, <laughs> is a high adventure camp, and uh, that's to distinguish it from you know the summer camps that you can you can go to and and uh, um, say lower adventure camps. So, you know, there's a lot of places to do cool things around the country, but there's four high adventure camps. There's uh Philmont. There's another one called sea base, which is in Florida. There's um, Northern tier, which I think it's in Minnesota. That's all about canoeing. And, and uh, basically you do a bunch of, of lake canoes, canoeing trips from lake to lake to lake, and you portage between each lake. Cool. Um, and then there, and then there's summit, which is in West Virginia, which is just doing really cool stuff. Like, Class four and five whitewater rabbits. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and uh, ATVs and just other really fun uh, adventure type things, right? That's so cool. Here's the thing. High adventure also means legitimately dangerous, right? Uh, you, you can die doing this. Um, the risk was low. Like, you know, you mitigate the risk. But being out there, it's it's legitimately dangerous. You have to take it seriously or, or bad things can't happen. Right. And so we got there. We got there in monsoon season, which I didn't know was a thing in New Mexico, but now I do. And um, they call it monsoon season because it rains almost every afternoon. And so basically throughout July in New Mexico, it's just it's just pretty much raining almost every day. Got it. Okay. And 
which isn't which is a little surprising when you get out there like hey i thought i was hiking in a desert and it is it's a high altitude desert uh it has a couple of different kinds of terrain out there it's not all desert but it's not sand duny type desert it's just climate is desert so they typically during the year do not get that much rainfall Mm -hmm. and so we were expecting it to be a lot browner and because they've been getting actually i think a somewhat above normal amount of rain it was actually tremendously green um that is unusual storms yeah yeah right like you you know like and you've been training for it and talking about it but the all the stuff we did in our pre-training they were talking more about like film on generically. So if you went in June or August, you wouldn't have seen it as green as when we saw it. Um, you probably wouldn't have to have dealt with the rain either. <laughs> probably. probably. Uh, uh, and the rain, you know, the rain is actually the least part of it uh, with the challenge is thunderstorms. Mm. And so uh, the, each of these, the, the afternoon rain was always accompanied by a thunderstorm. And the first day, like, I think maybe the, the third day out on the trail, second day out on the trail, thunderstorm hits we had just gotten into one of our our uh, staff camp and it starts raining and then it starts hailing and we thought this was pretty novel <laughs> and it starts lightning i'm uh, like wow this is this is getting pretty intense uh then we encountered this multiple times over the next couple of days and it kind of got to be a somewhat old hat yeah. uh, we had one hail storm where you basically could have made snowballs out of the hail there was that much snow wow. or so much hail that was coming down off of the the roofs of the camp that we were in so uh, and the challenge of the lightning is so, you know, when you're home, uh, you go inside. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If you're at summer camp, uh, go to the cafeteria. Right. Or, you know, get undercover. If you're in Philmont, get there to is no the cover. least worst place you can get. <laughs> yeah. Get down <laughs> so, off of your elevation if right. you're up on a ridge or something like that. Right. So if you're up on the ridge, get off of it. But don't go too yeah. far down because there's flash flooding. Because that could oh, accompany right, the thunderstorms. Right. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so yeah. You want to find the sweet spot between the doom at the top of the ridge and the doom at the bottom of the ridge. Because yeah. splash flooding is a, especially, you know, one storm we had, two inches of rain in less than an hour. That's a lot right? of rain. Yep. A lot of rain. And it all just comes down and kind of gets focused. And so it can be, it's dangerous. You got to be like legitimately aware. Um, and so the great thing about it is it, it got dry. So it was still desert. And so it would rain for like an hour and then it would stop. And then, okay, maybe I'm, my socks are wet. I'll just hang them off the back back of my pack. And within a couple of hours, everything was dry. So as so it was not to, humid think, at all, is what no, you're saying. No, no. And I got to say, once we got back here and I went for my first run in the humidity after being in film on a layout, bring the, bring the high altitude back. <laughs> <laughs> take high altitude low humidity over uh running through pea soup in pennsylvania that was our i think our single biggest challenge was lightning we got we got caught out once we were bushwhacking from one camp to another um and we were going up this ridge line and we weren't lost we never got lost we didn't quite know where we were Right, so you can pull out the map and you know approximately from uh, uh, that where you are on said map. Like we knew which hex we were in or which square we were in. Right, uh, but that only gets you so far, right? And you're trying. What we were trying to do was we were trying to hike into this canyon, and so we were looking for a place where two ridges came together, and there was a saddle, which is like a depression between the two ridge lines. And we were shooting for that saddle so we could come down into the canyon. We just couldn't find it, mm. and so. I'll, I'll tell you, it got, it got pretty tense, right? There was a lot of like kind of arguing about what to do and what have you. And eventually, this thunderstorm just like the lightning goes off overhead. You immediately hear the thunder. There's no counting because it just it was directly it's overhead. We're right like, there. Yep. Yes, 
Yes. Okay. So at that point, it was like, there's no time to discuss this in committee. <laughs> We're getting off this ridge. <laughs> so you have to, first you had to crouch down on what's called lightning position. So you spread out, you make sure that and any good D&D or knows that you need to spread out so the area of effect spells don't get everybody, right? Right. So 20 feet between each person so that if there is a lightning strike, you're less likely to take out everybody. Because somebody's going to have to perform CPR. Uh, and and then you wait. You basically get down to this crouch, crouching position, kind of like a squat where your, your heels are touching to try and minimize the lightning damage. Um, and we did that for like 10, 15 minutes. And then as the storm kind of moved far enough away that we felt a little safer, we got off the ridge line. But, I mean, <laughs> that is, it's scary. I mean, just straight up scary. Yeah. You know, it's like hunkering down for 10 to 15 minutes waiting because you're not under any cover or anything like that. It's just basically you're under the thunderhead right there. Right. And there's like random trees, but you don't want to be under the trees. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You don't want to be too close to each other, but there's only so much space you can spread out. Uh, You know, that was, that was probably the scariest part of the whole trip was just, waiting out that part of the storm and then just getting off the ridge. And then once we got off the ridge, like the storm had kind of blown itself out. Like it just kept going off to the side and then it was just light rain. and It wasn't a big deal. Um, but the flip side of that is before we got to Philmont for like the week before they had six days of steady rain, just wow. six days of rain. Um, and so what was happening is although as the desert, it gets cold in the desert. And so you know, it was like 40 degrees in the higher elevations at night. And so people's clothes were getting wet. Their backup clothes were getting wet. Their sleeping bag was getting wet. And so they were oh, developing hypothermia. So yeah. they had to take them off the mountain. So again, <laughs> legitimately hard, legitimately dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, it's what, like 62 degrees is like you can start getting hypothermia at, at that level um, or yeah. somewhere around there. Sounds about right. I, I'm forgetting my wilderness first aid at this point, but yes, yeah. I mean, once you start losing your body heat, it's and, and you can't get warm. It's a problem. So the the, the staff at Philmont were actually like running out blankets. They were picking people off the mountain because they were just getting too cold. It's uh, it was you know I knew go I knew all of this going in, but it's one thing to know a thing going in. It's another thing to experience it <laughs> to actually get there. <laughs> um. So, uh, you know, it was really good that I spent the la- that we spent the last year training because I think that helped tremendously because it can't, although it doesn't help with the altitude when you've got like, I don't know, 55 pounds on your back because you're carrying all this freaking food. Um, it's, you, you, you really needed to train for it. You one, as I've said before, one does not simply walk to Philmont or walk into Philmont. Um, so some of the stuff that we did that was pretty fun, uh, the, the, like the kind of the highlights that stand out, um, astronomy at a place called ring place which this was a an old um branch in one of the areas that had been conserved and so it's just it was beautiful like we get into camp and there's the obligatory thunderstorm it blows itself out we set up our camp and then go and talk with the staff they had telescopes out nice the milky way is this beautiful band of white in the going across the sky, right? There were people who had never seen the Milky Way before. You're trying to explain to them, well, you're looking at the spiral arm of our galaxy. They're like, no, really, what is it? <laughs> like, no, it's, it's a part of our, galaxy. Arm of our galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, I've never <laughs> seen it really well. 
Um, there's, I, I've always been in some place that had too much light pollution to really have everything stand out. Um, that's, that's something I, I'm really looking forward to at some point being able to do. It's really spectacular. And, uh, and then we saw Saturn through the telescope. We saw the cigar, um, cigar galaxy through telescope, a couple of other things through the telescope. They gave us kind of like the guided tour of the night sky at Belmont. And it was just crystal clear, beautiful because you're miles and miles away from anything resembling light pollution. So that was very cool. One of my favorite parts. Very cool. Um, the uh, tomahawk throwing and uh, black powder muskets. We did that oh, at Camp Pomeranda. Okay. That was Very pretty cool. cool. Actually, black black powder rifles, I should say. Yeah. Um, that was really fantastic. Um, just a lot of fun. It was really the thing we did on, I think, the second to last day we were there. And um, tomahawk throwing, I think, in particular, was probably the most fun. Like, the black powder muskets, because we were kind of punched, uh, uh, punched. We needed time. We, we didn't have a lot of time and there was a storm that was coming in. So we, they mm. wanted to get us through it as quickly as possible so that we didn't have the opportunity to load the rifles ourselves. They were doing it for us so that we could get the shots off. But that was still pretty cool. Uh, but the Tomahawks, <laughs> those are pretty fun to throw. Given the fact that there are axe bars out there where you can, you know, order beers and throw axes at targets, I, I imagine the Tomahawk throwing is pretty, pretty fun. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. My gaming groups talked about doing it for COVID. That was on our list of things to do is kind of like just to go out and hang out for a while. Um, and hopefully one of these days we'll be able to get out and do it again. But yes, it was it was fantastic. Um, we got to go rock climbing, which was great. Cool. Um, and I'm going to be a little braggy here. Uh, two years ago, I guess we went to summer camp and I basically did kind of like the, the climbing merit badge. Uh, me and uh, myself and a couple of other of uh, the scoutmasters were on that trip. Um, we had some downtime because we we're mostly older scouts on the trip. And so we basically went and took the, the climbing merit badge. So we learned how to do it all. We were working on like a rock wall, like an artificial rock wall. And then we got to climb right. an actual like cliff because uh, there were these great climbing cliffs near the camp where we were at. Nice. So I actually knew what I was doing. <laughs> Sweet. And so <laughs> we go climbing and I'm like, I knew it was kind of like a set activity. I wanted to make sure that all the kids had their opportunity to climb. And so after I knew that everybody was in pretty good shape uh, and they were struggling with it, right? Honestly, like, I don't think they had a lot of experience climbing. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, so they're really like having a hard time getting up, but it's taking them like 20 minutes to get the top of the cliff, 15 minutes to get to the top of the cliff. Uh, and then I came over and I did it and I just went straight up to the top. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> it was such a great feeling. <laughs> yeah. It's like all the trading paid off. I could actually do this. And like, to come back down and have some of the scouts be like, wow, Mr. Newquist, <laughs> you went up that really fast. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> we'll just call you Spider-Man from now on. Yeah, this is like Spider-Dad. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, I did slow down at the top because I got a little I got a little bit gun shy. Um, some of the holes were hard, harder to find because it's an actual like freaking rock wall. It's not it wasn't, you know, there were no artificial grips. You had to right. find your own grips on the way up. And it wasn't like it was a super challenging wall, but still. It was a legitimate like rock face that we climbed up. So that was nice. That was super fun. Nice. Um, we also played a game called Cowball, which is definitely not volleyball. And if anyone tells you it's volleyball, they're wrong. Even if it has a net that looks like a volleyball net and has a ball that looks like a volleyball, there are a variety of other rules that turn it into something that is definitely not volleyball. Okay. And so this became the running group. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> there were like, I don't remember all of them on top of my head, but there was like, 
once you got to 10 points, you had to put this hat on. It was much more like Calvin ball right? <laughs> than anything else. Like a bunch of uh, set rules that get increasingly goofy as you, as you go along. So that was, uh, that was when a lot When you get to fun. 12 points, you have to run the bases. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. Um, and the other thing that it wasn't actually an activity, it's just the thing I started doing was sketching. When cool. I was in high school, I used to do a lot of like art and a lot of drawing and painting and stuff. And I haven't done it in a very long time. I was never particularly awesome at it, um, but I definitely enjoyed doing it. And so I took, <laughs> I did a lot of journaling while I was out there. And so I took the time to start sketching. And once I did one sketch, it's like, wow, this was fun. And so yeah. I just kept sketching. So I'm awesome. hoping to continue that now that I'm back. That's been hard. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, in the morning, the great thing about being out there was there would always be some amount of downtime somewhere. And so you would just get out your journal and start, you know, I'd write down my thoughts for the day and I would sketch whatever I could see. Yeah. Um, it's a little hard to do that back in civilization. Yeah. I, it's one thing that, um, the, the smartphone, you know, your, your iPhone, my Android fills those times and, or it e- is really easy to let it fill those times. And if you're out there without any electronics, you've got, you know, you got to fill that time and sometimes it's better. Yeah, no, definitely. I think to your point, <laughs> when I've been at like, say I took my dad to a doctor's appointment, I could have been sketching. I was probably playing on my phone. <laughs> And I wasn't sketching on my phone. I was playing on my phone. Right. Uh, so yeah, you raise a good point. Like you're like we had our like the leaders had their phones with them, but we were using them for important things like knowing where we are, <laughs> taking pictures. <laughs> like yep. your phone becomes very important as a backup. Like we relied primarily on our navigation skills and not on the phones to figure out where we were. But you know, it was a it was a safety net, and so you can't like. You can't burn your safety net because you wanted to play Sentinels in the multiverse on your phone. <laughs> right. That That's like a uh, interesting question is, does the GPS in the phone actually work um, with no signal out there? Yeah, because GPS in your phone is not a function of cellular. Right. It's a function of actually communicating with the satellite. So did you like download, like, did you say, hey, I'm going to be like, I know that if I take a, if I like, hey, I'm going to be taking a trip, I'm going to go here, like Google Maps will say, hey, there's areas here that don't have good cell service. Do you want to download the map? Is that, is that kind of what you guys did? Was yeah, so download had, the area? Yeah. yeah. I don't honestly recall the name of it off the top of my head. I don't have the app with me, but uh, my phone with me, but, um, there, there was an app you could download, and we were oh, able okay. to download our itinerary. So download the map, download the itinerary, throw it in, and then you'd be able to see where you were. Gotcha. So with the, with that, you could use GPS to figure out, and it would also you could also use your phone to figure out your UTM coordinates, which was right. I think the the bigger thing that we were using it for, right? Like that makes okay, sense. Where are we exactly? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And then you pull out the map and try and figure it out. Uh, That's cool. It's very cool. So I couldn't help as we we're doing this hike about thinking about the uh, the role playing game implications, right? Because in as your you average D and D campaign, as you do, as you do in your average, uh, uh, well, you know, post apocalyptic gamble world campaign or D and D campaign or whatever, uh, there are times when you are going overland on a trek um, and might encounter some stuff. And so, you know, I started jotting down some notes as we were going along. Is this like ooh? My players are going to hate this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
actually they're gonna love it (laughs) (laughs) they're gonna love to hate it uh right yeah like like i told you i I hiked the halambu trail um there is a halambu rift in my game world so you know there's a lot of inspirations come from from hikes as well so so what 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 ones did you have if you don't want to if uh without spoiling it for your players if they listen Oh yeah. So the uh, so I will say there's just an observation. I think there's a reason why we don't simulate every last mile of an overland trek in your average like D and D or Gamma World game because it's really boring. Yeah. <laughs> right. It is technically challenging while you're actually doing it. And I suppose if you came up with some sort of a game to model the hiking, like through hiker, you know, we talked about through hiker a while back, mm-hmm. right? But even that was kind of like doing it at a at a higher level. Um, rolling dex checks every quarter mile uh, as we were kind of doing in the field is just is no nobody's idea of fun right so there's a there's a good reason why we don't do it it's really boring that having been said some things i took away from it there's interesting landmarks that dominate the terrain so we were just talking about mount baldy um and so this idea of something that stands out and just dominates the landscape for hundreds of miles around right and the, that, if nothing else, it's going to make the players go, I want to go there. And you as the DM need to call it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I was thinking about this because I know that there's a volcano in my game, in my lunchtime uh, hex crawl game, but I don't know what the visibility of the volcano is. spending <laughs> 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 all this time in the Serpent Hills, and so I don't know that they've had line, line of sight to it, but maybe they did. So I need to go back at my map and think, so I've got these mountains over here. How high are they? And... Can they see the smoking volcano while they're over in the Serpent Hills? Yeah. Um, I also have these shield mountains that surround the Serpent Hills and kind of turn it into this very arid area. Well, which peaks there are most interesting? Right? Is there one that's yeah. geographically, like you know, geologically interesting that would you know monsters go to it? Evil overlords want it. <laughs> I, I like that because, like, growing up most of my life in the Midwest, there aren't features like that. Um, the only feature like that was like when I would live in Northwest Indiana and I could see the Sears tower on a very, very clear day. Um, and, and yes, it was the Sears tower back then. Um, (laughs) uh, it's changed names like twice since then, but, um, but yeah, it's, I, I hadn't living where I am. Um, I hadn't even thought about something like that you know if you've got a a huge mountain range or even just or or a couple of distinctive peaks no matter where you are in the general area of civilization you're you're going to see those peaks from different angles um and yeah it could be definitely be a uh you know we see that from 100 miles away i want to go there sort of uh drive there's also they're important just as landmarks. So there's a thing mm-hmm. called the Tooth of Time, which is this big stone, uh, cliffy type thing that sticks off the edge of a ridge line, uh, just a, and, it, and it's above base camp. And so well before Philmont was there, back in like the 1800s, it stood out on the Santa Fe Trail as a key landmark, knowing that you were in the right direction to go to Santa Fe. Oh, <laughs> and if nice. you're yeah, in yeah. a horse, if you're right, if you're in, on a horse or you're in a horse drawn uh, carriage, right. And your life depends on finding Santa Fe, <laughs> being able to see the two of the time and knowing you're on the right way. And I think it was like two days wagon ride or something like that from 
the Tooth of Time to Santa Fe. So it was a very you know significant landmark on the on the Santa Fe Trail. So that's another right. thing, right? Like, are we going the right way? Hey, here's this you know thing that and and everybody knows about it, right? Like everybody is aware of this thing. Everybody talks about it. It's notable. It maybe have religious significance. Um, so it's it dominates the landscape in a different way because it's kind of a touchstone for for where you're going or where you might have been. That's really cool. Yeah. Interesting terrain. So a lot of times we're like, and you're walking down the trail. Uh, how has that trail come to be? Was it a game trail? Uh, that's a pretty obvious one. Uh, what about one that was carved by water? Right. So uh, one of our part of our trek was we were basically hiking along a riverbed. And as you're hiking along it, as I was talking about flash floods, uh, you can't help but think, <laughs> when did the water do all of this? <laughs> Right. Is it coming mm-hmm. back? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and calling those out as details. Right. Like, you know, you're you're hiking along the trail. And you might you know call for a nature check. Like you can't help but notice that all the stones along the sides of it have been worn, uh, worn smooth over time. Like perhaps. I don't know what by what. Oh, maybe water, maybe wind. Either one of those could be potentially interesting because the weather could impact you uh, yep. in, in some way. Uh, water, perhaps more pronounced. <laughs> than the wind if a sudden you know a wall of water suddenly shoots up from somewhere right but also to tie those things together so i'm going to talk about weather is dangerous in a second but you lay the clues right you're walking down the trail you notice that this has been a trail that was carved by water uh there's a thunderstorm getting pretty bad right uh hour later the consequences of that thunderstorm hit it's not actually right. the lightning you had to worry about. It was the three inches of rain that just fell in an hour that are now coming down the trail towards you. Right. Another interesting, um, and I can't remember the name of the mountain off the top of my head. I should have written it down before we started doing the podcast. I think it was called like Devil's Ridge. I think there's a name for it in Spanish. Uh, and it's made out of iron. And so it's basically this very sort of flat plateau. It's not really a ridge. I think it's actually a plateau and it's and it's made out of iron. And I think it's like the second most frequently lightning struck place on the planet. Yeah, that's the ridge you do not want to be on when the thunderstorm hits. Right. And what's there. Right. So in a fantasy world, uh, God, the elementals have got to be hanging out there. Right. Um, Maybe. Why is it hit so like the fact that it's being hit so frequently and because it's it's so seeded with iron, it's become a weak point in the in the between our reality and the elemental plane of air or one of the para elemental planes. Right. Like stuff's coming through there and it's not going to stop coming through there because it wasn't a portal somebody opened. It's a natural weak spot in reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I couldn't help but think of that when people were telling me about it, like, hmm, hmm. There's got to be something like that in my campaign somewhere, right? There is now. Um, yeah. Unusual <laughs> rock formations. We were talking about earlier about the Garden of the Gods. That's just cool. <laughs> right? And if we think it's cool, other civilizations would have thought it was cool, right? So it could be a holy place. It could be a meeting place. It could be a town, right? Like, um, think about the geography. Think about how the these kinds of rock formations could just become kind of again this kind of touch point for your campaign because everybody knows about them right we're going to the garden of the gods because that's the meeting place where we swap gear or what have you um there's also if you if uh, for folks who've been to montana or if you haven't been to montana like there are parts of montana that look like gods just came along lifted up the earth tossed it into the air and threw it back down again and you can just see the sedimentary rock and those rocks are hundreds of feet tall like maybe thousands of feet tall i mean the scale is just 
amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So thinking about terrain and just thinking, go, I guess going beyond your 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 own area, right? Like my, I most commonly mostly hike in Delaware Water Gap and Eastern Pennsylvania. And so a lot of my games uh, tend to look a lot like Eastern Pennsylvania, but you can draw a lot of inspiration from from other places. And if you can't go there, then Google them. Yellowstone is perfect for this. Yep. Yep. Uh, Google Earth probably would be really good. Yes. To take a look at um, because you can zoom pretty far in and have have a pseudo 3D view. Yeah. And the cool thing about these areas is that then they have stories that are attached to them. Right. So we talked about this in previous podcasts. I think in, in the editing, we may not actually have gotten to this in terms of what we've released so far. But, um, you know, Mount St. Helens, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, strange creatures, strange bat like Sasquatch creatures flying around um, after the volcano exploded, <laughs> right? That's you're combining folklore with terrain plus a catastrophic event, right? Like that sounds like perfect fodder for a campaign to me. And again, weather, going back to it, weather is dangerous. So lightning, flash floods, massive hail, um, weather transforms safe terrain into dangerous terrain. So, you know, think about that when you roll the survival check to figure out where they're going to camp. They got a five, right? Uh And maybe the DC was like a 15. And so, yeah, it's not a great campsite. There's no water there. There's barely any cover. But what happens when it rains? What happens when it snows? Right. Like, how is this campsite suddenly manifestly worse because the weather got involved? And the great thing is, like in the Dungeon Master's Guide and and other rule books, right, there are rules for weather. You can use them. (laughs) Everybody's like, what do you mean? (laughs) Because I think a lot of times in in campaigns, I think either as DMs, like weather complicates things. And so you kind of skip past that part or you just don't even think about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's it's sunny or overcast all the time. You know, right. no, no rain, no wind, snows, ne- snow never happens, you know, <laughs> in most most campaigns. I think most of my some of my most memorable uh, games in my campaigns have been when I introduced a blizzard. Right. And then and they got caught out in it. I mean, if you think about like the Fellowship of the Ring, right, mm-hmm. they can't go over the mountains because a massive snowstorm is stopping them. Right. So weather in part forces them to go under the mountain. And we all know what they found there. Right. So <laughs> don't forget about weather. Um, there are seasons. Uh, seasons are important and regions may have their own seasons that people will know about. So, you know, monsoon season in New Mexico, a lot of rain in the afternoons in July uh, in your adventuring career, you know, the first couple of months you were there, maybe you're new to the area, you don't know about this. And then July happens and everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's monsoon season. And you're like, what the hell is monsoon season? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they have uh, in New Mexico, not New Mexico, in New Hampshire uh, and in New England, they have black fly season, mm-hmm. right, where the black flies are just thick and they're going to come get you. In New Hampshire, in particular, they have mud season, right? So you have winter, you have spring and spring leads into i don't know if mud leads into spring or spring leads into mud i'll have to ask my sister but there is just so much melted snow that just everything just goes to to mud and so we can imagine the complications that come about (laughs) yeah we call that february here you know (laughs) like february a little bit into march it's just overcast cold and muddy right now imagine doing that in full plate yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, on, on unpaved roads or on unpaved roads. Yeah. So again, we're not necessarily trying to make uh, I don't think you're ever actually trying to make the players lives 
horrible, right? But these make things interesting. Add, they make them interesting, right? So I just did this in my campaign uh, just on Monday. Uh, they're currently making their way up a river to get to the dense jungle to find uh, the black lotus, which lurks deep within the jungle. And so they hit, you know, it's a tropical rainforest. They hit the rain. And meanwhile, in the rain, uh, while they're all gone below decks, they hear thumps against the sides of the boat that they're on. And suddenly um, they put two and two together and realize they're not hitting rocks. They're getting attacked by a hydra. So there's something oh. underneath the, the, <laughs> the, the boat that is is pounding on it. Meanwhile, there's a couple characters are up on deck. They're making uh, procession checks with disadvantage. Um, there's something out there, but they can't quite make it out, right? And so there's this moment of like, wait a minute, what are we up against, right? And then suddenly the Hydra comes looming up out of the, the rain. And I think that makes for a very cinematic, like you see that it's truly cinematic. You see this in movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's not as much fun if, like, you see the monster coming. Like, this is the point of Jaws, right? Like, you don't get to see the shark. <laughs> you just get to see the evidence of the shark. Yep. Um, so the yep. same is true of weather. Weather can help you with that, right? Very cool. Uh, but the last thing I would say is unexpected enemies. So uh, we went into that region knowing there were mountain lions um, and knowing there were bears. There's also actually not been a bear or mountain lion attack in uh i don't think there's ever been a bear attack the last um mountain lion attack happened sometime i think in the late 1800s it was actually a fascinating story because there's a woman who lived on one of the ranches and and she was out doing what you will (laughs) she gets attacked by a mountain lion she's wearing a corset the corset actually saves her life because the mountain lion isn't able to get through the, the corset when it attacks her. She Got whips it. out like her belt knife, kills the mountain lion <laughs> with her belt knife, then drags the mountain lion back to camp. So that's an awesome NPC if I haven't, if I've ever heard of one. Like, that's yeah. just fantastic. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty oh, awesome. Trolls. We, we haven't had a troll attack since uh, old Lily went out and, like, decapitated <laughs> it with her kitchen knife. Yep. <laughs> Um, but there, there, there then are the unexpected enemies, otherwise known as mini bears. So out in uh, in Philmont, they have uh, ground squirrels. I think they're like Western golden ground squirrels or something like that. Um, and these things are really aggressive in so much as they are utterly fearless. They will come into your camp and just eat your food. And so you really needed we didn't want any bears or mountain lions in our in our camp. We also didn't want any other critters especially these things because they're super, super just like, Oh, Hey, you've got food. And then they come up and they're like a foot away from you. And they're like, give us food. Hey, give us food. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, These things were so fearless that uh, on the black uh, powder rifle range, you could go and set up your own targets. Like, so I set up like my guidebook because I didn't need it anymore. And it was filled with like helpful facts about film on it. Well, I already had the helpful facts, so I'm good. Uh, so everybody would line their things up, like somebody put their hat out there or what have you. Um, and they had a, a, a mini bear named Fat Gus who would just come out onto the range and just walk amongst all the items that you'd put out there sniffing while people were shooting. Wow. <laughs> Right, so there are bullets whizzing around this thing, and it doesn't care. There's there's a fine line between fearless and really stupid. (laughs) I think think Fat Gus passed that line into the really stupid side. Yes, yeah, so it was, you know, but in camp, 
you know, these things were just coming into camp. And so you had to get your food up. You had to watch your food. You had to make sure they didn't get into your stuff. So from a, like a D and D or role-playing game perspective, what can you sick on your players that they're not expecting, right? They're expecting the wandering war band. They're expecting mountain lions. They're expecting the, the you know, the random troll or the saber tooth tiger or hell, they're even expecting a dinosaur, but yeah. they're expecting swarms of mini bears to come and eat all their food. <laughs> Yeah, are they are they expecting uh, chipmunks and squirrels to come in and be fearless and eat them out of house and home, and then yeah, and the, they're yeah. a week and then they're a week away from civilization and have like whatever food they were able to salvage from being pillaged in the middle of the night, right? And suddenly that survival check becomes uh, that much more important. And the funny thing about all of it was. Uh, some of the, the the scouts in our truck were like, well, these things are working. These things are acting really weird. Right? When they first encountered them, they're like, they must be rabid because they're coming into our camp and they're utterly fearless. They must be rabid. And like uh, in this case, it was actually a baby little ground squirrel came into our camp and he was just very confused and hungry and scared all at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he really wanted food, but he didn't want to be around people, but he really wanted food, but he didn't want to be around people. Uh and so they're like, oh my gosh, this thing's acting really weird. Like, no, I think this is just what they do. Because we had encountered them previously when they were trying to get into our snacks, because we had been split off from the from the from the party, from the crew earlier in the day. Like, no, I think this is just how they act. And then the next day they saw them at the rifle range, and they're like, okay, we understand now. <laughs> These things are hereditarily They're accustomed to humans for sure. Yes, yes, definitely. And then, you know, so the other thing is, you know, what moves in when something's been uh, abandoned for a short period of time, right? So uh, there's a place called Baldy Town. It's located next to Baldy Mountain. Uh, and when nobody was there for a year, wood rats moved in. Oh, and these no. are from what they just, we didn't see them. We mm-hmm. only got to hear about them from talking with the staff. But it sounds like they were very familiar, very similar to rodents of unusual size from the Princess Bride. Like these aren't just little cute little rats, these yeah. are big rats. And, oh, Baldy Town is where you resupply for food, right? And so there's a lot, like, they had to lock everything down. Like, they had to make sure that nobody was leaving any food out, right? So, you know, uh, town got abandoned because there was some sort of, you know, freak natural occurrence the year before, what have you, plague, whatever. You come back, what's moved in, right? And what won't leave? (laughs) Yep. So, you know, there's a story hook right there, right? Like, well, you know, we tried to reoccupy the town, but we got this problem with rats. And then the adventurer is like, rats, whatever. We're not first level, <laughs> but they're <Nice>. dire rats. <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it a lot. So that's pretty much my ideas from Philmont. Uh, it was truly fantastic. It was a great trip. Uh, there's probably a, another idea or three squirreled away in my journal that I didn't find, but it was great for hiking and it was uh, a great experience and it was great for my game. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I want to be able to do something like that pretty soon too. So, uh, probably on the water, <laughs> but yeah, I can't wait to hear your own stories of, of time out on the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that'll be a future show. Yes. Hopefully a very soon future show, but, uh, we'll yes. see. Yeah. So everyone, uh, thanks for listening. If you have feedback, we love feedback. You can send it to us at podcast at lairofsecrets.com or via Twitter at Lair of Secrets. You can also visit lairofsecrets.com and leave us some feedback, topic ideas, or your own thoughts about what we talked about as a show note or as a comment on the show notes. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>